or truly of the Spirit, or truly walking in the Spirit. You think about this on an individual basis, but then you can also kind of think about this more broadly in reference to the church, the collective body of Christ in a local assembly. And in thinking about particularly this matter of spirituality, um, coinciding with it, particularly when you think about it in view of, or in relationship to, I should say, a, a, a local church, a gathering of believers, is it not true that there is, no matter what your doctrinal convictions are around spiritual gifts or you might say, what constitutes the demonstration or the observable manifestations of spiritual life within a congregation? Is it not, in fact, true that there's going to be diversity in that? When you think about the nature of a local church, for example, churches develop a certain sort of vibe or a certain culture. That's sort of common in any kind of gathering of people for any kind of sort of common or shared purpose. And every church has its own sort of vibe, its own sort of cultural feel. And sometimes you can go into a church and you might lay their doctrinal statement next to our doctrinal statement and find very little difference, meaningfully different, a meaningful difference, I should say, And substantively, the two churches, you would consider them to be like-minded churches. But you might go into that congregation and join them for a a time of worship, and you might feel a little bit off, a little bit awkward, a little bit uncomfortable. The same is true for people coming into our congregation. They might come into our our, our church and come to our worship, and, and it just not feel right, it not sit right with them. The challenge, again, as always, is what constitutes substance here? What constitutes legitimate markers of true spirituality? The fact of the matter is is that we can have a little bit of humor around this. We can joke and kind of laugh about this. I would say that our church, uh, especially in terms of the vibe and worship, we're not high church. You know, we're not overly ceremonial uh, there's no, um, there's there's not a lot of uh, incense burning, and there's not a lot of chants being offered up or anything like that. We're not Gregorian chant, you know. There's not a big choir of men around us chanting. We're not excessively formal, but we're also, in some ways, much more stoic than a lot of other churches. And in fact, there have been people who have come into our church, and that's been hard for them to adjust to. In fact, some would come into our church and they might draw the conclusion that, that these people don't really know how to worship God. I mean, they're just so quiet. <clears throat> I'll give you a little funny anecdote related to that. So last night, my son comes into me in our room and, and says, uh, you know, I, I got onto your, he, he obviously walked by my office and saw my computer was open and I was you know, in, in the process of studying and preparing. And he said, I just want to let you know I added a note to your lesson, just trying to help you out. And I'm like, <laughs> what? 
He goes, I, I added the note, a note, and, and he said something along the lines of, it's really, it's really not a note, it's really the main point. <laughs> and I, of course, I went back in and I read it, and not only did he add the note, but he had highlighted it. I mean, it was like literally highlighted in the text. But it was in reference to a bit of a, a humorous, um, uh, you know, co- sort of running commentary that uh, he and, and a few others in the church have kind of been talking about. And there's a little bit of uh, across, the, across the gym eye contact that takes place at times. But it has to do with clapping in church. And I don't know if you've noticed, but it's not as though our church at large is robust in this area, right? In fact, it's like, hey, hey, you know, there's a little bit of like, what, what, should we clap? Can we clap? Is it okay to clap? Maybe we shouldn't clap, you know. My son uh, is, is an anti-clapper, just so you know. He wrote this note. I'm going to go ahead and read the note. I told him I was going to do this. He's not here to hear this, but you guys can let him know. He'll be here soon. He's just running late. So he put this at the end of what I had written up to that point. So that's why he said it this way. He says, all that being said, the main point is that we at FCC are anti-clappers and see this as being more heretical than even speaking in tongues. So that's my son's... That's my son's contribution to the lesson this morning. But as I, as I kind of laughed myself about that and thought about that whole dynamic, the fact of the matter is, is that uh, we can be led into conclusions about what constitutes true spirituality, authentic. You have this emphasis on being authentic, right? We want to be real. We want to be authentic. What constitutes authentic worship, authentic spirituality? And there are those, particularly in the realm of worship and in the exhibition of various gifts in the context of worship, would go to a place to ascribe spiritual authenticity to the exhibition of certain quote-unquote spiritual gifts in the context of worship. So much so that the converse to that kind of conclusion is that the absence of such exhibition means the absence of true spirituality. To the extent, for example, if you want to put it into a more strict doctrinal context that we're going to be exploring in future studies, but to the extent that you and I are not, for example, speaking in tongues we are thus demonstrating that we have not yet received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Now, this kind of doctrinal conclusion, substantive doctrinal conclusion, does not begin, usually, with someone carefully studying the Scriptures, like the Bereans, to see if these things are so. Most of the time, largely, these kinds of conclusions are drawn based purely on experiential criteria for determining what is, quote-unquote, real or authentic. And the more profoundly I experience 
sensory experience something, the more real it must be. The more substantive, the more authentic it must be. And so you have people who will make determinations, whether it's all the way to the extreme of making some kind of doctrinal determination about what it means to exhibit spiritual gifts in a certain way or not, all the way to just a more general sort of cultural vibe kind of experience, whether they clap after special music or not, as an example, that those are the determiners of authentic spiritual life within a local church. It's really, really a dangerous proposition for any individual believer to approach that kind of assessment using those kinds of markers to determine what is real, what is genuine, what is authentic. And as we've been talking about, this really is the the, the focal point of the Apostle Paul's instruction in chapters 12 through 14. Really, this is a, a point of focus for the Apostle Paul throughout this entire letter. He is contending with those in the life of the church who have begun to employ worldly wisdom and worldly characteristics and worldly qualifiers to ascribe to either themselves or to others genuine spirituality, authentic godliness, authentic spiritual life. And so when it comes to this section on dealing with spiritual gifts in the life of the body, it stands to reason that the same kinds of patterns of thought, of habits of thought that were informing the Corinthians as it related to other matters in the church, whether it be to ascribe loyalty or spiritual authority to Paul or to Apollos or to Peter, as the factious loyalty clans were kind of identifying, being identified in in chapter 1, or whether it be manifest in lawsuits amongst believers, whatever the, whatever the scenario, there was, this, there was this sense of spiritual authority that was being ascribed based upon worldly conceptions, worldly ideas, worldly wisdom. So that's what's happening here in this matter of spiritual gifts. And we talked about this quite a bit last time as we looked at the first three verses of chapter 12, and the Apostle Paul dealing with spiritual confusion and spiritual compulsion and spiritual counterfeits. These were the three things that we talked about from the first three verses of chapter 12. But today we want to move forward in our discussion and begin to look at verses 4 through 11 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And let me read that for us together and get it kind of framed up in our minds as we kind of step into this study. He says... Excuse me. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. 
All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Now, before we kind of step into, I guess, our formal outline for this morning, I want to define some terms, or really one primary term, and kind of, kind of ex- expand on this definition a little bit. It is here where we are introduced to the actual word that is translated in English, gift, spiritual gift. This term, I'm sure you've heard the term, charisma is the term. We might pronounce it charisma, but it's really charisma. And this term is is in reference to that which is freely and graciously given. It is favor bestowed. It is a, a gift of grace. That's what the term means. It is something that is given freely and graciously by grace. Nothing, it's not earned. It's not acquired by merit or by effort. It is not something that is demonstrated in, in direct association with one's innate or natural abilities. It is something that is graciously given, bestowed. This term, charisma, is almost always in the New Testament, it's always, almost always used, in fact, it's used 16 of its 17 times, to designate a gift that has been freely bestowed by God, which also includes, for example, the gift of salvation that we read about in Romans chapter 5 and in Romans chapter 6. It's used to refer to undeserved blessing, the blessings of God that we receive from him, as we read about in Romans 1 and Romans 11. And then here, in, and in other places, it's in reference to these divine enablements. So this term, gift, this, this term for gift is used to, to sort of characterize something that has been freely given or bestowed upon us by God. And it encompasses other things other than just the spiritual gifts that are in view in chapters 12 through 14 of 1 Corinthians. Now, since, since these chapters that we're studying focus upon this particular type of free gift of God's grace in the form of divine enablements of individual believers, it's fairly easy, I think, to see how this whole matter of spiritual gifts can easily become distorted. This is, this is about, this, this chapter is a focus on divine enablements, graciously given divine enablements that God, by His Spirit, gives to individual believers. And so if you think about that in the context of what we've looked at that was going on in the Corinthian church, it's not a, a, a broad leap to recognize that this could pose significant problems in, in the context of immature believers. Think of it like this. Young children at Christmas, when they are given gifts, their tendency is to w- want to do what after they get the gift? Show it off. Go show their friends. I mean... A child who gets a new bicycle at Christmas time doesn't keep the bicycle inside and pull their parents up close to them and just 
just look at the bicycle and talk to the parents about how much they appreciate this gift that they've given them, that they didn't deserve. No, they get on the bicycle and they want to go show their friends, look at my new bike. They wanted to show off, they want to show off the gift. And, and, and that's kind of what was going on in Corinth. There, there was a sense of like showing off giftedness. This is, a, this is a common practice. Showing off giftedness for personal gratification, for personal or individual recognition. And in, in doing so, the spiritual gifts that had been given to them freely and graciously by God that he, the Apostle Paul references in, in chapter 1, very, very plainly, they, they had become distorted. And they had become mixed or misused or misassociated with natural abilities. Natural I guess oratory gifts is the main thing. And they were showy. So in our common parlance, just to give us an idea of of what was taking place, the English version, charisma, this is the same word, really. It actually means, there's two definitions. There's a rare personal quality attributed to leaders who, who arouse fervent popular devotion and enthusiasm, or... Personal magnetism or charm. That's how, that's how the dictionary defines charisma in sort of, a, sort of a secular sense, common vernacular sense. So when someone in a secular context is described as having, for example, a charismatic personality or they are seen as a charismatic leader, the focus is always upon the person and the influence they have, or the praise that they garner. That's, that's, that's what we're talking about when we're talking about someone who has charisma or is charismatic. The honor and the praise and the recognition reflects back on them. They have some innate, sort of hard to put your finger on, but totally obvious quality that garners for them fellowship. People wanting to be around them. Them having the the, the ability to influence and to move and to lead. And so, at this point, we need to make a very clear distinction because this is what was being confused in first century Corinth. This, This idea or this demonstration of what you might call natural charisma versus the actual manifestation of the, the grace gift, the spiritual gift that had been given by God. So we need to draw a distinction here that spiritual gifts are not natural talents. They are not natural abilities. Someone who is, for example, and this would be sort of common not necessarily common amongst all the people in Corinth, but certain, certainly commonly praised, commonly recognized in Corinth, the person who had the sort of natural ability of oratory, because public speaking and rhetoric and oratory was really a form of entertainment in first century Corinth. And so the person that could sort of either come into town or sort of lived among them, 
who had this unique ability to pick up a, just a random subject matter and then just wax eloquent on it was, was a way to sort of entertain the masses, to weave a tale and to tell a story and to sound really authoritative and, and impressive because they were just good speakers. This is what was going on in Corinth. This is what the Apostle Paul was sort of up against. And you see this right out, right out the gate as he's talking about his own approach to coming to them and not in eloquence or wisdom of speech. I, did, I didn't come to you that way. I came to you knowing only Jesus Christ and him crucified, you would say. But we need to draw this distinction because the spiritual gifts that the Apostle Paul is instructing them in and, and clarifying for them and really correcting them to understand and to be able to walk in faithfully, these are supernatural enablements. They're not natural abilities. They are only and always given graciously by the Spirit of God to His redeemed people. It's not that natural enablements or natural abilities are not sort of uh, um, utilized in the demonstration of spiritual gifts. I mean, if someone is gifted in some particular area, or excuse me, I should say naturally gifted, has a natural ability in some particular area, it doesn't mean that they, that, that, that natural uh, ability is not going to be used effectively in the manifestation of a spiritual gift. It's just that we need to see them as separate things. The fact of the matter is, is that someone can be a very good speaker and even seek to uh, present spiritual or biblical truth to people, but not really effectively teach, particularly if that speaker is very much conscious of how they're being perceived based upon the cleverness of their oratory. So you can see how this would play out. As we said last week, These believers in Corinth were truly called and truly gifted, really magnanimously so, the Apostle Paul describes in chapter 1. They were identified with Christians everywhere. I mean, he he goes to great lengths in chapter 1 to sort of describe them as saints of God in various ways, in various points of identification. And yet, they were exhibiting or majoring on natural abilities, particularly in areas of speech, and then ascribing to themselves giftedness of a certain type. They were showing off, basically. This is a, the, 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 the problem here in Corinth is that there was... No real distinction of understanding between what a grace gift of God was here versus what were the natural talents of people to be able to be impressive in front of others. So these supernatural enablements, they're only and always given graciously by the Spirit of God to His people. And so, consequently, true spiritual gifts that are manifested amongst God's people are only and always pointing to the gracious giver of the gifts. That is a distinguishing marker. That is a point of true discernment in the life of the church. The the, the manifestation of true spiritual giftedness 
is done in such a way that it's constantly pointing to the gracious giver of the gift, not to the gift itself, and certainly not to the one who's received it. In, In Corinth, you have manifestations of something, but the manifestation of these gifts were often in conflict with this primary distinguishing characteristic. This is the big part of the problem here in Corinth that Paul is addressing in chapters 12 through 14. The exhibition of a few showy gifts, likely by a small number of sort of big, naturally talented personalities in the church, it became the standard of what it meant to be gifted. I mean, just think about it for a moment. In the life of the church of Corinth, They are persistently contending with factions and jealousies and rivalries. That's what they're contending with. And if you have someone, if if you're in a cultural context in which oratory is a big deal that can earn someone near celebrity status, if, if if that is commonly ascribed, a way to ascribe to people leadership and influence and people who are impressive. They're able to do that. Character, even the content of what they're saying, that's kind of secondary. How they say it, the ways in which they weave sentences and phrases together, the way they're able to captivate a crowd through oratory, that's what constitutes real power, real authority. That's what makes someone impressive. And so you have big personalities with natural abilities that are now redefining in the life of the church what it means to be gifted by the Spirit. Now, just pause for a moment and think about what we see all the time in some of the excesses of spiritual giftedness in our day and time. What is it you see? When you go to your favorite, you know, Exposing the heretic YouTube channel, whatever it might be, right? The latest excess in prophecy or whatever, you know, predicting the end of the world. Pick your sort of, you know, random extreme kind of version of some notion of divine enablement or spiritual giftedness. And what you see over and over and over again is a complete redefinition of the nature of charisma. A grace gift given by the Spirit of God to the glory of God. And when that becomes something that is distorted and used for personal gain, when the very nature of the expression of that gift is clearly centered on drawing attention and influence for one's own benefit, The Apostle Paul would say that is not a spiritual gift. It's not what that is. That's a counterfeit. So in Corinth, this charisma, these spiritual gifts had lost their true meaning. And they'd become distorted and abused. And so in a sense, Paul, through these chapters, is hitting a reset button. He's just sort of clearing the slate and saying, let's, let's, I, I want you to understand spiritual gifts. That's how he begins in the opening verse. You need to understand spiritual gifts because 
Clearly you don't. And as we move into these next few verses here, this is what he's going to do. He's going to just sort of clear the decks and reset everything that they had assumed about the true nature and purpose of authentic spiritual gifts. So let's look more closely at Paul's clarifying instruction here. And and note first that he highlights the diverse nature of spiritual gifts. The diverse nature of spiritual gifts. Seems as though in Corinth they had narrowed their understanding of giftedness. Likely narrowed it down to just gifts of sort of phenomenal public speaking exhibition kinds of, of gifts, if you will. And what the Apostle Paul is doing here is he's going to explode in their thinking the diverse nature of spiritual gifts. If you look at the first part of of verse 5, the first part of, excuse me, the first part of verse 4, the first part of verse 5, and the first part of verse 6, you see that. Verse 4, now there are varieties of gifts. Verse 5, and there are varieties of service. Verse 6, and there are varieties of activities. Emphasis, it's varied. There are varieties. And this This term uh, translated varieties in the ESV, it comes from the root word, which means to divide. In the noun form here, in verses 4 through 6, it carries the idea of distribution or apportionment. So, in essence, what the Apostle Paul is saying here is that there is a broad and diverse distribution of spiritual gifts. You've narrowly defined it to just these kinds of exhibitions no, that's not it at all. It's, it's broad and diverse in its distribution. They're divided up or variously dispersed or apportioned among all the redeemed members of the church. And natural abilities and social status and financial means, none of these factors determine nor limit the Spirit's sovereign distribution of gifts to each and every believer. Remember, this is what was going on as well in the life of the church. We saw that in chapter 11, where those who had means were excluding those who didn't have means from the distribution of food at the love feast around the communion table. There was definitely in Corinth this stratification based upon social status and financial means or wherewithal. And so what the Apostle Paul is saying here is that The the distribution of spiritual gifts is wide. It's diverse. They are apportioned widely. And these natural or social or financial characteristics do not limit the diversity of that distribution in any shape or form. This is a sovereign work and a gracious work of the Spirit to distribute as broadly and diversely and apportion them as he sees fit. So we see here first this diversity of distribution and as we look at the diverse nature of the spiritual gifts. We also see that there's a diverse, there are diverse ministry scenarios in which the gifts are demonstrated or used. He says in the first part of verse 5, there are varieties of service. Varieties of service. This term service, Diakonia, this is the term we get the word deacon. It's the term for service, uh, servant, I should say. It's from the root word diakonos. It means a servant or a minister. And so 
This term is most commonly translated in the New Testament as ministry. There are varieties of service, varieties of ministry in the life of the church. So spiritual gifts are widely and diversely distributed and diversely deployed in a variety of ministry contexts and scenarios. So again, think about the church in Corinth and how they had narrowly defined what the nature of gifts were in their distribution, and then also narrowly defined the context, the ministry context in which those gifts would be used. If, if you narrowly define giftedness to something that is purely oratory and purely public, how many people in the life of the church does that naturally exclude? Most. Most. The Apostle Paul is having none of that. That is such a distortion of the nature, the true nature of spiritual gifts in the life of the church. It too narrowly defines the nature of the diverse distribution of the gifts, and it too narrowly defines the ministry scenarios, the diverse, the broad, the far-ranging ministry scenarios in which those gifts are demonstrated and used in the life of the church. Public and highly visible ministry scenarios represent a rather small number of ministry contexts in which gifts are used. So that that should be also another indicator that helps us discern when true spirituality is being manifest in the life of a church. If there is a great emphasis almost to the exclusion of everything else, upon the more public demonstrations of giftedness and to the exclusion of all other types of gifts that can be demonstrated in all kinds of far-ranging contexts, that's not a healthy spiritual scenario at all in the life of a church. Public, highly visible demonstrations of giftedness, that's a small piece of the pie in the church. A very small piece. And any church that focuses on that is hampering the spiritual life and vitality of the church. Literally. Any church that has a singular, strong public speaker you know, in the pulpit but has no one else exercising spiritual gifts in a wide range of ministry contexts in the life of the church, I do not care how sound the doctrine is of the public speaker, or the preacher, or the teacher. That will be an anemic, sickly, weak, ineffectual church. And the Apostle Paul is calling that kind of unhealth out because that's what was seeming to be going on in Corinth. So there's a diverse distribution of gifts. There are diverse ministry scenarios in which those gifts can be demonstrated. And there are diverse effects. This is also part of the diverse nature of the spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts, as they are widely distributed and used or demonstrated or manifested in a broad range of ministry contexts, have an equally diverse range of effects. Again, When we narrow 
the markers of measurement or assessment of genuine spirituality to something that is observable and yet temporary. For example, in the whole, since public oratory was such a major part of Corinth, we'll continue to use that example. If you have someone who speaks and speaks well and even delivers a, a reasonably sound, doctrinally sound message, and, and people are sort of moved emotionally and with a little bit of conviction, uh, but it doesn't have any real lasting effect in one, in one case. In another case, you have someone who might not be as oratorically savvy, but still nonetheless very sound, uh, maybe a little bit dry in their delivery, and yet the Lord uses that to, to mobilize people into all kinds of effective ministry. That, that's the idea here. That, that the Lord is the one who effects the use of the gifts. This term here, he says a variety of activities. That's what he's talking about there. A variety of activities. You could also say it's a, a variety of effects. Or this term means a, the, a, an effect or an operation or a working out. So there's a variety of ways in which the gifts, as they're being used have effect or, or work themselves out. It's not one way or another. And again, it's not reliant upon the person who has received the gift to determine what the effect will actually be. That, too, is contingent upon the sovereign prerogative of the Spirit of God who gives the gifts. He's the one that determines the effect as well. And those effects are far-ranging. There's diverse distribution of spiritual gifts. They're deployed in diverse ministry scenarios. And it's true that when each of these gifts are used, it will have a diverse effect, a diverse operation, or a diverse working out. It'll be far-reaching and far-ranging. And just like the gifts, just like the giving of the gifts, as I said, are solely the Lord's work, so are the effects the Lord's work. John MacArthur in his commentary sort of says it like this, just as spiritual gifts are given supernaturally, so they are energized supernaturally. Christians, no matter how well trained and experienced or how unselfishly motivated, cannot exercise their gift in their own power. We may exercise our talents, skills, intelligence, and other natural abilities in our own power, but only God, the giver of spiritual gifts, can empower them and make them effective. I can just tell you as someone who, week in and week out, is given the task of standing before you and publicly teaching and, and speaking about God's truth, this is profoundly true. It is been made clear to me over and over and over and over again. The most common way I could illustrate that anecdotally from a personal level, and I kind of hesitate to even say this out loud because it certainly doesn't reflect very well on me, but there are times, admittedly, where I might come in here and work, work through a lesson with you guys, and I might go away from that time feeling like, ah, that, was, that, that came off pretty good. I mean, I feel like I was tracking. I feel like I was, you know, I had my stuff together. You know, I, now hopefully I don't reflect on that too much. I mean, hopefully I'm not like, you know, 
driving home and saying, did you, man, you look good in that mirror. That was really good. You did a great, I mean. But there's that sense, you know, you go away and you're like going, I feel like I, feel like I really, you know, I feel, I feel like I was really in the zone kind of thing. And there, there have been times when that's happened and something will occur. Either it's just a passing comment or just some kind of interaction where the Lord will just remind me, you fool. And I will, I will go away from that sort of anecdotal encounter with the profoundest sense of lowliness and conviction that you could possibly imagine. And on the flip side, there are other times where I stand up here and I literally, and I'm not exaggerating, I literally, my sense of the time is that I did not string together two sentences that made any sense at all. There, there's just a, a reflective sense where you're just like, I, I don't, I was so out of sorts. And I'll have seven people come up to me and express profuse gratitude for the lesson. And it makes no sense to me upon my own sort of internal reflection. None whatsoever. And the Apostle Paul would echo that by just stating here that there, there are diverse effects in the use of these gifts. And to the extent that we become self-referential and what those effects are or what we should expect or what we're kind of looking for to determine whether or not God was at work, Again, we are totally distorting the whole purpose and function of the gifts and how they are energized, how they are worked out, how they are made effectual. They are made so in the same way that they are given. They are made so by the Spirit of God who gave the gift to begin with. And so, in the use of spiritual gifts in the life of the body, all recognition all adoration, all praise, and all dependency is upon the Spirit of God. Completely. Not on someone's individual talents or abilities or their training from days gone by or their long years of experience or this or that. The Lord uses all those things for His glory, but that is not what's at the core of the use of spiritual gifts and of the effectiveness of their use. There's a diversity in their effect. And then also there's a a diverse unity. How's that for a little bit of a seemingly contradictory way to, to frame this up? In the diverse nature of the spiritual gifts, there is a diverse unity. Now let's listen again to to verses 4 through 6 in totality. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. In those few verses, notice how the Apostle Paul simultaneously highlights diversity and sameness. This is a beautiful picture of the body of Christ here in the context of spiritual gifts and their deployment in the church. Varieties of gifts, varieties of service, varieties of activities, but the same Spirit, the same Lord, and the same God who powers them all in everyone. 
And to each one, diversity, for the common good, unity. It's possible here that the Apostle Paul employs what we might consider to be Trinitarian language. You have this reference to the Spirit. You have this reference to the Lord, which is often the the term used for Christ in Paul's writings. And then you have this reference to God. You have all three of those represented here in this passage. The same Spirit, the same Lord, and the same God who empowers them all. It's possible that that Paul is using this sort of Trinitarian language to drive home what is a deep theological reality. That this diverse unity within the body of Christ that is vividly manifested in and through the distribution, use, and effects of spiritual gifts. That, That diverse unity within the body of Christ is vividly manifested in and through the distribution, use, and effects of the spiritual gifts in similar fashion as there is diversity and unity in the Godhead and the triune God himself. Gordon Fee would sort of articulate it this way. These opening sentences seem to intend to give the theological context within which all that follows is to be understood. Each begins with different kinds of or varieties, making clear where Paul's emphasis lies, and each is followed by a noun that characterizes the activity of one person of the Trinity. You have a similar sort of language, reference points in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 to 7, where the Apostle Paul there says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Clearly, in the mind of the Apostle Paul, as it relates to this demonstration or manifestation of spiritual gifts in the body of Christ, there is to be a noticeable, unmistakable, diverse unity. Another marker, another discerning marker. Where there are factions and divisions and jealousy, there is not the proper spiritual manifestation of spiritual gifts. The exact opposite is the intended use of gifts. The exact opposite characteristics should be in play. And as much as there is a diversity of distribution, a wide-ranging variety of contexts in which the gifts are used, a broad range of of ways in which those gifts have effect, there is still a very palpable unity that all of that diversity is driving toward. That's the wonder of the body of Christ right there. No matter how diverse the distribution or varied the ministry scenarios, no matter how multifaceted the effects, all spiritual gifts are given exclusively by the triune God through his spirit for the common good of the church, which is the body of Christ. And any other demonstration, any other characterization that you might see demonstrated or manifest in a local church 
is suspect at best if it's something that's not driving the church toward greater unity and, and doctrinal clarity and alignment with the triune nature of God himself. So spiritual gifts have a very diverse nature to them. But they also, the Apostle Paul also takes us to a very diverse illustration of spiritual gifts in verses 8 to 11. Now, we're going to get further into this as we go forward. We're going to look at these various gifts that he raises up here. We're going to sort of survey them more broadly in in other places in Scripture. We're going to be talking about uh, various doctrinal lines of conviction around the appropriateness or the normative demonstration or use of the gifts in the life of the church today versus the first century. We're going to get into all of those matters. But today I just want to highlight what the Apostle Paul is, is doing here, and that is that he's providing a diverse illustration of spiritual gifts. You may recall last week I mentioned how oftentimes when we come to this particular passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 or even chapter 14, or you might go to Romans or you might go to 1 Peter, you might go to these other places that we'll look at for, in brief in just a moment. Most of the time when Christians are making reference to these particular passages, the motivation is, I want to know which spiritual gift I have. I'm going to go and look at the list and say, that's me. Or, I don't have any of those. In fact, my church doesn't do any of that. Are we not spiritual? But what the Apostle Paul is doing here in context is he's providing an illustration of spiritual gifts that illustrates the broader point that we've just been talking about. He says, for, there's your key, for, to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. There's your other bookend. This list is to illustrate the point that He began with, which is the same point that He just ended with. All these, as for example, are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. This is an illustration of spiritual gifts to illustrate the point that He's been making about the diverse nature of them, but also the diverse unity in the manifestation of spiritual gifts. And we know this, not just because we see it here in the, in, the context excel, in the context itself, but we know this because it's illustrative rather than an exhaustive list. It, this is not sort of the, the comprehensive list of spiritual gifts. If you don't see yourself in that list, sorry, you don't have spiritual gifts. I mean, it's not, it's not the nature of this, right? It's not exhaustive. We know that because there are other gift lists in the New Testament, And those lists don't overlap. It's not like it's the same list to reiterate what we just read in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 
For example, in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 12, you have this reference to gifted men, men who are given as gifts to the church. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. And then in Romans chapter 12, verses 4 to 8, you have what you might consider to be more functional ministry gifts. Listen to how these are described. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. There's the unity. Having gifts that differ. There's the diversity. According to the grace... Not according to your natural abilities or my natural abilities. According to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches, in his teaching. The one who exhorts, in his exhortation. The one who contributes, in generosity. The one who leads, with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy, with cheerfulness. These are functional gifts. I mean, you can easily sort of look into that list and go, oh, I think that might be me. I think that's the way the Lord's gifted me. A little easier here, right? And then you have Peter giving us really just two major gift categories in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. He says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. There's the reference to God's varied grace, his diverse distribution of grace gifts to the body of Christ, with a unified purpose of serving one another. And then he says, verse 11, whoever speaks, there's one category, as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves, there's the other category, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. When you look at these different gift lists, What you do not see is a common thread of listings of gifts. What you see is the common thread of the Apostle Paul's central thesis in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that we just looked at. Namely, that the gifts are grace gifts of God. They are distributed variously according to God's purpose. And they are unifying in their ultimate purpose or effect in that they are for the common good or to be used to serve one another. So that we're all built up. That we're all drawn together in common mission and common purpose and common effectiveness for the gospel. The common thread in these various lists is not to say, well, here's your list. You better find one there. Pick it out. Or maybe pick your favorite and see if you can conjure that up, work that out. The common thread are these more fundamental truths, these fundamental principles about the nature of the gifts and the nature of the giver of the gifts and the purpose that those gifts were given. So this is is an illustrative list here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, as are the other lists. But it's also a contextual list rather than a universal list. In other words, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and what we see listed out there in the gifts is very much associated with specifically what the Apostle Paul is contending with in Corinth and in that church. You'll notice in that list, it's a heavy focus upon exhibitional gifts. 
very different than, for example, the Romans list. I mean, the Romans list is like, that, that could be any number of people in the life of a church that's just kind of doing ministry and just doing the mission of the church. But here, it's like, I, I'd, have to, I'd have to go to a YouTube church to make this happen. This is much more exhibitionary, much more public, much more associated with oratory and phenomena. That's the nature of this list. And this is what the Apostle Paul is having to contend with, as we'll see as we continue on in this study. You'll notice that it's, there's, there's this focus on these exhibitional gifts with a, a complementary focus upon the unifying work of the Spirit. And this is because there is a corrective embedded in this list. A corrective to the jealousies and the factions that were present in their exhibition of the gifts. Throughout this entire stream of instruction, the Apostle Paul is hammering home the source of the gifts, the true nature of true spiritual gifts, and the identifying clear purpose of the giving of those gifts and their manifestation in the life of the church. And all of that is standing implicitly and in some places explicitly in contrast to what was going on in Corinth all around him. So we have to assume, at least to some meaningful degree, that for the Apostle Paul to pick out these particular manifestations of spiritual giftedness and to list them out He's not just trying to provide you and I some kind of content for our spiritual gifts test that we want to take online. He is illustrating a major, major point, and he's going after the correction that is in view here, this focus on exhibition and self-referential benefit in the use of the gifts. And he's calling them to unity. In the Spirit. True spiritual gifts demonstrated by truly spiritual people drive the church toward the same kind of unity and diversity that is existent eternally in the Godhead. That's what he's driving them toward. And what the Corinthians were demonstrating was something that couldn't have been farther removed from that fundamental truth principle. This is what was grieving him, and this is what he was going after. Well, as we come back together next time, we'll start digging into the specifics of the gifts, trying to give some definition to them, some broader biblical context to them, and we'll really start to unpack this both doctrinally and practically as we try to think about these carefully and what our faithfulness individually and collectively as this local church uh, should look like. Let me, let me close. I love this quote from John Calvin as he introduces this particular section in his commentary. It's just a, a very well-worded way to kind of conclude our thoughts this morning. He says this, the symmetry of the church consists, so to speak, of a manifold unity that is when the variety of gifts is directed to the same object As in music, there are different sounds, but suited to each other with such an adaptation as to produce concord. Hence, it is befitting that there should be a distinction of gifts as well as of offices, and yet all harmonize in one. Let's pray.